uh, joined a gym this last week. I'm never going to use it, okay? I know, but don't judge me. Some of you judge me. You don't use your gym memberships, I know for a fact. Uh, so, but open up to Mark chapter 13. We're going to be doing some heavy lifting in the book of Mark this morning. Uh, you've, uh, uh, you've found us, if you're visiting or if you're a, a new person or a new believer, uh, you've found us in the middle of, well, towards the end, but uh, in the midst of our exposition of the book of Mark. Here at Hope Church, we love to uh, go through books of the Bible as God has inspired them and so uh, see everything in their original context and uh, uh, in their um, historical context as well. And we find ourselves in Mark 13, which is, is uh, really the, at the heat of the argument or uh, or. Sorry, just come after the real climax of the argument that, that Jesus has been having with his detractors, with the, the leaders of Israel, the, the, the Levites, the priests, and the, uh, 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 the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They'd all, they'd all disagreed with Jesus. They didn't like that, that he was being proclaimed as the Messiah. They didn't like his miracles. They didn't like what they were seeing. They knew them to be true. They knew that they could not deny them, but they just they hated him. So they sought to destroy him. And so in the temple that he rode into in this last week of his life, so, so quite a, a fitting that we've just had Easter. It was at this time of year that, that uh, in April that Jesus was in the Jerusalem temple just leading up to Passover, which would become our, our Easter celebration. So in that final week of his life, the most important week of all human history, as he argued with them and he debated them and he proved that they were wrong and that he was the fulfillment of Scripture. And then he, he left that, uh, he left the temple in, in quite a rage against them. He, he walked out and he went up to the, the Mount of Olives where he sat and his disciples had some questions. And this is recap because we're going back about six or so weeks before we, uh, when we started Mark 13. But they asked him, they had a couple of notes, they, they were taking notes during his sermon, and they just recognized that one of the things he said was that the house or the building, the, the, the temple was going to be uh, left desolated or destroyed, and they, on the way out, they did happen to mention to Jesus, isn't it a beautiful temple though, the gold, the white stones, the huge structure, and of course he said to them, it's, it's all coming down, there's not going to be a stone left on another stone, there's not going to be a temple to come to in years to come, because I will make sure that it is torn down. And to that they had enormous questions. And they asked him at the beginning of chapter 13, what do you mean by this? What do you mean that the temple's coming down? When is that going to happen? And, and when will the world end? Because to the Jewish mind, the temple ending and the new world starting was the same event. Or, or this whole created order coming down and the temple coming down had to be the same event. There's no such thing as, as God working in the world through the people, if there is no temple. But he shows to them that these were, in fact, two different events. One, one event, the destruction of the temple, the tearing down of the old system, the tearing down of the old temple, the tearing down of the old way to access God, was going to be for, uh, the, the old system was going to be fulfilled, achieving what it was given for, that is, producing the Christ and bringing the gospel to bear, once that is accomplished and finished, the old system can be torn down because God doesn't need it anymore. The scaffolding can be removed because the true building is established. The old temple will be destroyed because the new temple is being built. The old covenant can be done away with because the new covenant is now established. 
And towards the end of the chapter, which we will see next week on Sunday morning, we will see that he is talking about the end of the world itself when he comes back at an unknown time, an unknown day, an unknown hour, and then he brings his final judgment. But today we are still going to be from verse 14 through to verse 27. In chapter 13 of the book of Mark, verse 14 through to verse 27. And the word reads like this. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to stand, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. May God bless this reading in our midst this morning. Well, it's, it's obvious that as you read this, that one of the first ways to take it is that Jesus is talking about, as we've noted, the end of the world, the end of the whole world, when all of these catastrophical things happen. But we've been seeing that from the beginning of Mark 13, the context is, when is the temple coming down? And Jesus is answering, and he's already said, well, before it comes down, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be conspiracies and battles and nations rising against nations. And we saw that in the lead up to that temple destruction in AD 70, there was just that. The the hundred year peace of Rome was ended in fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy. And the nations of the empire started raging against one another. And one of the most volatile groups of people was the Jews. They had sparked up a war with the wrong enemy. They had stuck their fist into the proverbial bee's nest of the wrong type. They had angered the Romans. And in AD 70, God was going to send the Roman armies to to march through Israel, flatten it, burn it, drench the ground in blood, and consume everybody into the city of Jerusalem, which they would besiege and then destroy and flatten by fire. That's what was coming. That's what Jesus had prophesied. And then in verse 9 to 13, we also saw in chapter 13 that Jesus was saying, but, but while that's happening, you are going to be giving witness to the nations, to the whole empire. The known world is what Jesus says. And in everywhere that you go, you'll be beaten and mocked and horribly treated, but the gospel will take a harvest. The gospel will save souls and they will worship Jesus, the Messiah. So those two things are going to be happening. Destruction of Jerusalem in the coming years, 
as wars and rumors of wars work up to that and the proclamation of the gospel to the whole Roman Empire with many becoming saved. And that is really, as we said when we preached that two weeks ago, a summary of the book of Acts. Tribulation, affliction, yet winning souls through the power of the triumph of the gospel. And yet now we see that, that Jesus starts going even more prophetical. or He starts using even more Old Testament language as he is foretelling what will happen in the lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem. <coughs> so he says, first of all, he speaks of the abomination of desolation. Secondly, we'll look at, at the tribulation that occurs in those days. And then thirdly, we will look at the sign of the Son of Man. So first of all, looking at the abomination that brings desolation, or the abomination of desolation. The abomination is somebody, something, as, as the Jewish uh, uh, scriptures foretold, the, the language of abomination is something that is unclean, unholy, that defiles holy things. And Jesus was prophesying that in the lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem, there's going to be something happen, which he calls the abomination of desolation. And when it happens, he gives them an action to undertake. So he's going to say, flee to the mountains when the abomination of desolation stands where he ought not be. Let the reader understand, or in the other versions of the Gospels, they say, as was spoken about by the prophet Daniel. Now, if you're somewhat familiar with the Old Testament prophecy, you'll, you'll at least have that phrase uh, uh, recognized in your head, the abomination of desolation. Now, the Jews had rightly understood that Daniel's prophecy had been in large part fulfilled when he spoke of one of the abomination of desolations. Everybody understands that in Daniel, he spoke of two. He spoke of one that would come on this timeline that Daniel gives, which was fulfilled in 168 BC. And then there was a second one that some believe on the back of this passage is fulfilled at the end of the world that I believe was fulfilled in that destruction of Jerusalem. At the end of the 70 years or four, 70 weeks or 490 years that Daniel prophesied. So, so the abomination of desolation Daniel spoke about was somebody who would come and uncleanse the temple. They would come and defile the temple of Jerusalem. And this was, of course, uh, from Daniel chapter 8 and chapter 11 and chapter 12. The prophecies of that occurring were of Antiochus Epiphanes. Israel was a Greek king at the time, as we said, 160 years before Jesus. And, and everyone understands that Daniel gave such specific prophecies that he came in and he, he defiled the temple and he, he slaughtered pigs a Jewish unclean animal in the temple to Zeus. He, he defiled it and it was after wars and battles that the, the Jews eventually won back their temple and re-cleansed and recommitted the temple in, 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 in cleanliness, in ceremonial cleanness, as was prophesied by Daniel. Now Jesus takes up that language and says, but there is a part of what Daniel said about the abomination that brings desolation that is not yet fulfilled, which will be fulfilled before the temple is destroyed. And of that, he speaks of the, the prophecy of Daniel in chapter 9. We're not going to go there. We just don't have enough time this morning. But, the, but what he's referring to is Daniel chapter 29. And so he says, the abomination of desolation, that is somebody that is coming who will make unclean, because he's an abomination, of desolation, or the abomination that brings desolation means the abominator, the unclean one who's going to come and destroy things. 
That person is coming. They will come. That, that body of people will come and stand where he ought not be. And when that happens, run out of Judea into the mountains. What Jesus is referring to, the, the abomination of desolation in Jesus' prophecy is the armies of Rome and the other nations that are joined in with Rome. We know this for contextual reasons, but at least in the synoptic gospels, they, 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 they sort of run together. And in Luke's version, Luke does not say the abomination of desolation. He just shortcuts it and gives us God's own exposition of the meaning and just says, when you see Jerusalem the holy place, where the, the Gentile nations ought not be, that, that holy place, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee to the mountains. So God's own exposition and explanation of this verse using the other gospels as, interpret, as scripture interprets scripture is clear to us that Jesus is saying when the Roman armies come, and they besiege the, the city. They set up a siegement around the city so that you can't escape. The, the, the commandment is run to the mountains. And, and, and what is confusing about that is, is in their day, you just don't, go, you don't run away from the city when the enemies are coming. In those days, the, the cities were the bunkers. The cities had the walls. And of course, Jerusalem was known to be the city that, that could not be conquered. Herod had so built up the walls that it was indomitable. You were never going to get into Jerusalem once they closed the gates. And you could not get out. It was, it, was, it was an enormous structure. And so, of course, the logic is, if the armies are coming, get to the city. Unless something supernatural, like God tearing down the city through the armies, was going to happen, where he would give a miraculous winning victory to the Romans, if that was happening, then of course what Jesus says makes a lot of sense. Run away. Get out of the city, because on the basis of this prophet's word, it is being torn down. And so histor uh, history accounts show us that this is what happened when the Roman armies in AD 70, in the, in the April of AD 70, came around and they, and they uh, sorry, earlier than that, they, they, they put a besiegement around Jerusalem and then for an unknown reason, we're still not entirely sure why, it was something because of the political uh, 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 turmoil of the day, they just backed up. They took down the towers. They moved away and they recamped elsewhere at which sign the Christians, knowing this prophecy, did not pack up their things, dropped what they were doing, and fled to the mountains called Pella. There's historical evidence, historical accounts telling us that that is what the Christians did, and they earned by doing that, they earned the hatred of every Jew because they abandoned the city in the time of need. Those Jews who had believed in Christ, believed his prophecy, and after they saw Jerusalem surrounded by armies, the abomination of desolation, they ran. They left Judea. They ran to the hills of Pella and escaped the judgment of God. And as you look at verse 15 through 18 there, Jesus says, the one on the housetops, don't go down, don't enter his house, don't get your cloak, don't take anything out. If you're in the field, don't go back. Women who are pregnant, woe is you on that day. It'll be hard to waddle away in a hurry when the Roman chariots are coming upon you. <clears throat> Pray that it may not happen in winter. All of these things actually, well, while on one hand they're, they're a command, and they're a command to that generation, this is what to do, don't waste time, just get out, the Romans are coming. But what it also shows to us is that this is something that had to apply to Jesus' generation that he is talking to. 
This is not something that is applied across all church history, nor is it something, in my belief, that is happening, that is being commanded to a future generation before the world ends. It is a prophecy happening with commands straight to the generation he's talking to because they're so local, they're so Jewish-specific, they're so time-based. It makes no sense to say, pray that it doesn't happen in winter, if it's a global tribulation, because winter happens differently in different hemispheres. He says uh, in Matthew's version, pray that it is not on a Sabbath. Well, first of all, it doesn't matter if it's on a Sabbath for 99.9% of the world, because we don't have the Jewish Sabbath. And yet, he's saying, pray that it not be on a Sabbath, making it a Jewish context. In Mark's version, he also says, if you're on your housetop, don't go down. Friends, most of us, I'm, I'm going to assume, uh, in, a, in a land of hail and, 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 and rain, we don't keep all of our goods on the housetop. We don't spend our Sabbath afternoons resting on our housetops because we're not Jews. And in the Jewish day, this is what they did. They had low, flat housetops where you had your banana chair and you had your afternoon sit down with a cocktail. That's what they did. So he's saying if you're resting in your lounge room or in the Jewish context, being on your housetop, don't go in and get your stuff. Just run. It was possible to, to run out of the city by running along the housetops of the day that led to the city walls. So what this is showing us, and without going into all of the specifics, it's showing us that this is a time-based, generational-specific, Jewish-specific context. Jesus does not say, when it happens, everybody in the world run to all of the mountains, but those in Judea, when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, run to the mountains. So it's quite specific in its time application and in who he was talking to. <clears throat> but he says uh, 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 there to flee. In other words, what he's saying is, I am bringing in my judgment as the son of man, in my enthronement as the king over the new kingdom, I am bringing Roman armies to exact my judgment on those Jews who killed me. So when you see it start happening, run. Do not be caught in the judgment. Just like in the Passover, they were told, everybody get under the blood of the lamb in the house because if you're not in that house, judgment is coming to you. So Jesus is saying, get out of the city, flee away, listen to my words, or you will be destroyed along with the faithless Jews who murdered me. And so he goes on. That's, that's where we see the, the prophecy of Jesus of the abomination of desolation, the unclean one who is coming to destroy. When you see it happen, run. Second thing we see is the great tribulation that will happen in that day. So you can look at verse 19 through to verse 20. He says, for in those days, as a time stamp exactly to the moment that he was talking about, in those days that he has just been speaking of, that Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. In verse 19, Jesus gives us a chilling prophecy of warning to those who are listening to him that day. He told his disciples that, that the reason you need to flee, the reason you don't go back and grab a cloak before you run, the reason you, you help those pregnant ladies out of the city is because what is going to happen to that city is unimaginable wrath of God. If we can place it on the broader map of Scripture, what is going to happen in AD 70 when the Romans come is the fulfillment of the covenant promises of punishment that the Jews received in Deuteronomy chapter 28. 
Just before they entered the Holy Land, they were told, if you obey me, you'll be blessed with all of these blessings. But if you disobey me, this land will spew you out. And what I will do is bring nations to siege you, nations to kill you and and boil you and destroy you in this nation. If you disobey me in this land, it will be a punishment for you. You will be cursed. Such was the covenant that God made with the Jews at the beginning of their nation. And so therefore, what Jesus is saying in verse 19 is, all of those promises of destruction that I made with the people who I had a very special relationship with, they're going to come down in such a way that no other generation before or later will ever experience the wrath of God in a historical sense like the Jews of that generation. We, we, we need to not start wondering what this could possibly mean and go, well, well surely this, effect, this event in history was worse than that, or surely this event the Jews suffered worse than they did in AD 73 and a half, short years, not quite as bad as X, Y, Z, but Jesus is not even just speaking about the three and a half years. He's speaking of those five months between April and September when the, when the siege occurred. Let's just believe the words of Jesus, the prophet, when he says, as the son of man, there won't be a worse time. There's never been a worse time. And do you know why? Because there's never been a greater sin than butchering the author of life and Lord of glory. It makes sense that that nation, that generation, those people who cried out, we have no king but Caesar, kill Jesus. Give us Barabbas, take Jesus. We know he's innocent, crucify Jesus. We know he's our king, crucify Jesus. There's there's no greater sin than that. So there was no greater wrath of God from heaven on a people, generation, or nation than on that nation. That is why they said, prophesying their own doom, let his blood at the crucifixion, they said, let his blood, O Pilate, be on us and our children. And Jesus had said in Matthew 23, the blood of the prophets and the apostles and the Messiah will be on you and your children. For all of the righteous blood that was shed by the religious Jews and the guilt therein will come upon this generation. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul calls it total destruction coming upon them because of their persecution of Christ and the church. (laughs) Not only was this Roman destruction and divine judgment but mingled in through it was demonic activity. Some of the most horrible scenes are detailed for us by this man, Josephus, who was a, who was a, 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 a Jewish Pharisee, who was a general in the Jewish army, who was defeated in a different city, trying to defend against the Romans, and then taken captive, and for the conveniences and a fair sum, kind of traded sides and, and went for the Romans a little bit. And he accounted the Jewish... Roman wars for us in such detail that it is some of the darkest things that you can go and read. I I don't recommend doing it on a fine holy day like today. Maybe Monday. Mondays are bad enough. Josephus accounts some of the horrible thing, the scenes of starvation in those five months that the city was surrounded by Romans. The starvation was severe. There was infighting and murder, brothers murdering brothers and and fathers giving over their children to the flames in order to have something to eat. I won't be too graphic, but I'll at least say this. The things that come out of a person should not go back into a person, but when you're starving in the siege of the tribulation that is the worst that the world would ever and has ever seen, you start putting what came out back into your boiling pot. 
They, they, they had infighting where the, the factions of all the Jews, the Zealots, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they began a war with each other. And somebody, in order to make everybody fight harder against the Romans, they had years and years of food storage. And because that was sort of a motivation to sit back and relax and not fight the Romans, some of the zealous people went and burned down their food shortages so that it inspired people to fight. So you've got starving people, ravaged, murdering, stealing, cutting other people open in order to eat the food that they have just eaten. And the most, the most horrific scenes are detailed for us where women boil and eat their own children. Now, I could have left that out, and I wanted to, had it not been exactly what God had prophesied in Deuteronomy 28. In Deuteronomy 20, I only mention the detail because it shows a fulfillment of the curses that God would bring. This is what he says in Deuteronomy 28, verse 52. He says, they shall, if they, if they are un, unjust and they break the covenant, this is what God would do to his covenant people that he had blessed so much. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout your whole land, which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you, in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. Jesus, on the back of the covenant promises of punishment of Deuteronomy 28, is saying, it's all been piled up. The wrath has been piling up and it will pour down on that day and take, therefore, take the window of opportunity to leave. The tribulation will be worse than ever it has been seen. Back in Mark chapter 13. <clears throat> the judgment was to be accompanied along with salvation. This is what we, I have continually said that the prophets would do in the Old Covenant, is come to the guilty people and say, God's bringing judgment because you've broken the law, but there is opportunity for salvation. Judgment and salvation. Curses and blessing to those who would return to the covenant. And in a similar way, Jesus says that in the middle of the worst tribulation that has ever been on the earth, God will shorten the days. God will shorten the, the years to three and a half years of war, five months of siege, because he has chosen people amidst the rebellious Jews who are going to see the fires of Jerusalem, see the destruction of the old system, see their family starved to death, see their children be killed and burned. He's gonna, they're going to see all of that, and in their being taken away as slaves to the far reaches of the Roman Empire. That's what happened. At the end of the siege, they were taken, most of them were butchered, but the healthy ones were taken as slaves and many of them were thrown into the Colosseum and like sporting events to, be, to fight the wild animals. But Jesus is telling us that some of them, some of those who witness the evil days from the inside of the tribulation, some of them are God's chosen people. Let us never think that it's ever too late to repent. It's never too early. Don't assume you have tomorrow. None of them should have. And yet God in his mercy amidst the most sinful generation of the world would have as he promised every time that he spoke about judgment on Israel in the Old Covenant, he would have a remnant. The Israel within the Israel. The, the true Jews who would believe upon the Messiah and be saved. And so that is what Jesus says there. Every human being involved in the tribulation would have been slaughtered if it went on longer. So God shortened it so that some human beings would be saved. For the sake of the elect, verse 20 says, for the sake of those chosen ones for salvation, 
Amidst those rebellious Jews, he shortened the days. We can assume that they went out, they heard the gospel of the Jesus who had judged them and they believed unto salvation and we will see them in heaven. So that was the great tribulation. The message that we learn from that is opposing Jesus is eternal suicide. The Jews needed to learn that lesson then. Some of them would, be, would escape and then learn the lesson to their salvation. Let us learn it today. Opposing the gospel, rejecting Jesus, or, 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 or even for rulers and rebels and religious people. If anybody rejects and rebels and pushes against the Lord Jesus Christ, it is eternal suicide. Believe by faith in Jesus' truth and his gospel and his grace and be saved. But then we go on even further. He said, the abomination of desolation will come and destroy, so run. And if you don't run... What will happen in those days is the worst of the tribulation ever imaginable. And yet, number three, we see the sign of the Son of Man. We start in verse 21 in order to show us a bit of the context that Jesus is making. He doesn't quite initially and immediately speak of the sign of the Son of Man yet. Look at verse, th- uh, uh, verse 21. He says, If then anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, Do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I've told you this beforehand. So so what happens in the historical accounts of that siege is that just like at every other time of God's judgment, you especially see this if you read the book of Jeremiah, that there's always false prophets who stand up and say, no, 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 the true prophet was wrong. God's just not that angry. God's way more loving. God wouldn't punish us. God wouldn't send us to hell. God wants to be your friend and wants to give you your best life now. Big smile, lots of cash, very popular message. It's the sign of a false prophet that they tell you what you want to hear. And so in that time, the the false prophets rose up. We already looked when we uh, uh, exegeted chapter 13, verse 6, two sermons ago in this series, which said that false prophets and messiahs would come up. And so many did in the years leading up to the tribulation of Jerusalem. But Jesus is saying in those hot and heated tribulation months, there will still be people trying to promise that salvation is around the corner. God's about to appear out of the sky. And many of them, inspired by demons, had miraculous powers and deeds to perform. In fact, the history tells us that uh, I think that what Jesus is referring to when he says these different phrases in verse 21, he's actually referring to the two types of prophets and messiahs that that were told about. In the siege of Jerusalem, some of them were saying, look at verse 21, if someone says to you, look, here is the Christ, and that was the, this is like the inward sign, many people had tried to say that in the the secret chambers, the, the huge storerooms and gathering rooms, underground, underneath the temple, they were called the chambers of secrets, that's pretty cool, but anyway, they were saying in there, the Christ has appeared. Come and see him. Come and find him. Salvation is there. He's doing miracles. That was, that was some of what the prophets were saying. And the other prophets were up on the city walls saying, look, there he is. Let us go out into the desert because the Christ has appeared. That, that, that's what history tells us were the two lines of, of prophecies that these false prophets and Christs were bringing up. And Jesus says, don't be led astray by that. Don't look for their signs and wonders within the siege Jerusalem. Don't look for the signs of the false Christ and false prophet to end the tribulation. And here's the context of what he says next. 
Because the sieging and destruction of Jerusalem is the sign of the true Christ. It was the prophecy of the true prophet. Those guys want to end it. Those guys want to end the tribulation in their prophecy because they're the anointed Christ. But I'm the real anointed Christ, and the fact that I'm judging Jerusalem is a sign of that. And I'm the true prophet, so the fact that it is taking place proves my prophecy. Do you see what he's saying? So don't listen to them. Listen to my words. I'm telling you beforehand, when all of these things take place, you will know. And therefore, he gets to verse 24. He says, but in those days... After the tribulation. So, so the, the prophets want to give a word in the tribulation to end it, but no, that won't happen. The true sign will come in the closing of the tribulation, in the ending of the tribulation, in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. He says, in those days, after that horrible tribulation, and then he goes prophetic. He uses these old language imageries. He says, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. So, so while the false signs of the false messiahs will be, will, be the, will be to be rejected, there is one undeniable sign of the true messiah. That at the conclusion of the siege, it would be signifying who the true messiah is. And the true Messiah is the one who foretold these things. The darkening of the sun, the darkening of the moon, the falling of the stars, and the shaking of the heavens. This is prophetical language. This is Jewish Old Testament specific language, symbolic, of course, of, of, of Jesus saying that the sun will go dark. The, the blessing of the countenance of God, which was the, the Jewish blessing, may God's face shine upon you, May he bless you and keep you and give you peace. That, that whole blessing was going dark. We sort of got a, a symbol that God uses darkness and light in judgment. When, when Jesus at the crucifixion, the midday sun went dark. This is what God does when he's showing that he is judging. He takes away the light symbolically. Also, the, the, the language of the moon was, even it was darkened. The secondary light would not give its light. We know that in Isaiah, he says, this is just coming back to me now, he says, uh, uh, if they do not, he's speaking of false prophets, if they do not receive the word, they have no dawn in them. They have no coming light. They have no shining light from God if they don't receive the word. And here's Jesus using similar language. Pulled right out of Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10, where he uses language in a different situation of prophecy against the destruction of that other nation, the sun will go dark, the moon will go dark, the stars will fall down. So this is Old Testament language of God destroying a city or a nation. <coughs> he says the stars will be falling from heaven. In, in, in the Old Testament, the, the, the stars and ancient Near, Near East uh, literature, the, the stars are symbolic of the leaders, the princes, the teachers, the, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the leaders of the nation and the runners of the temple. Well, what are you going to be doing when you're the stars over the temple and the nation when your nation no longer exists and your temple just got flattened? The stars will be crumbling, tumbling, falling down to the ground in this prophetic language. And he says, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. There's a quote from Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 6, which says that one last time I will shake the heavens and the earth. And we don't need to be confused about the application or the explanation of that verse because Hebrews chapter 12 verse 26 and 27 gives us the exact meaning of it. 
Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that what God meant by I will for, for the last time shake the earth and the powers of the heavens is that he was going to tear down the old system. The old system of relating to God, the old system of the nation laws, the old system of the temple sacrifice, the old system of the Davidic physical kings, all of that was coming down. It was God shaking the heavens and the earth so that what was temporary would crumble. And Hebrews 12 tells us, but we've inherited a kingdom come to a mountain and a city that cannot be shaken. So that God shakes the world in the, in, the, in the destruction of Jerusalem. It's not just the destruction of Jerusalem. That's secondary. The real ending is the finishing of the old covenant system. The Levitical priests, the sacrifices, the kings and all of that. So it's, it's signifying when the earth and the heavens are shaken, a new start to a new way to relate to God in a new covenant, in a new kingdom with a new Christ. That's what he was saying. And therefore, he says... And they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Again, the Old Testament uses this language of God riding on clouds as a sign of judgment. Psalm 18 says this, as, as David was praying that God would come and help him defeat his enemies and Saul, he says that God came riding on the clouds in the wings of the cherubim and the thunder surrounded him and the dark was around his feet and coal and hellfire came with him. And all that happened was a battle was won. These were not literal meanings. These were symbolic, true meanings. It's also used of riding on clouds in judgment in Isaiah 13, Exodus 16, Numbers 11, and many others. So that they're seeing the Son of Man is judging. This is meant to be scary language. It's happening. It's coming down. Everything he said is being fulfilled, but they will see the Son of Man coming with great power and glory as he rides on the clouds. This is symbolic of, if I can swing back to, you don't need to go there, it's just one verse, but in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, as we referenced a few weeks ago, Jesus had said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now Jesus is saying to those same disciples that this generation is going to see the Son of Man after the tribulation, they're going to see or recognize, they're going to accept that the Son of Man is in heaven. It's not that they are physically going to see the Son of Man coming down to us. It, it is that they are going to see in the events that happen that the Son of Man is in heaven. That's what they're going to see. They're going to see the destruction of Jerusalem as proof that the Son of Man is in heaven. Now, a little bit of context, last few points, then wrap up. For a Jew, the big event that you were waiting for was the Son of Man to go into heaven and receive the eternal kingdom from the Father. So, so in Daniel's prophecy, he says that he's sitting there and the, the vision he sees that all these kings are being judged by God and then one like a son of man, like a human, waltzes up to God, which tells you something. It's not just a human because humans who waltz up to the presence of the Ancient of Days get burned to a crisp. But he's accepted. And not only is that son of man accepted, he's given God's throne and power and authority and dominion. And then his kingdom rules over all kingdoms He's the judge over every other king and his kingdom lasts forever and is filled with people from every single country. That's a prophecy. So if you tell a Jew the son of man is in heaven, you're telling him somebody has gone up to God 
received the kingdom and is going to judge all kings and kingdoms. And he has started an eternal kingdom. So it's more than just saying he's there, not here. He's saying everything prophesied has taken place. The one we were waiting for has already come and we missed him. So Jesus is saying that the proof that the Son of Man is in heaven, the proof that the Son of Man was the guy you crucified, the proof that the Son of Man was the guy who prophesied all of this, is that it all comes to take place, and you know for certain when Jerusalem burns that the Son of Man is in heaven. He rode those clouds into the presence of Yahweh and received his kingdom. So if we can illustrate this with two, in two ways... One would be to use the imagery that Jesus used of the cornerstone, Psalm 118, and the other would be to use the imagery of the parable of the tenants. When Jesus spoke in that week, in the Holy Week, and he spoke of Psalm 118, which said, the builders, who were the Jews, the elites, the religious people, you'll remember this if you were here a few months ago, they rejected the cornerstone, threw it away, and wanted to keep on building. And Jesus said, that stone that you threw away was actually the most important stone of the whole structure. In fact, it's God's cornerstone. It's the one that God wanted to use to build the kingdom, and you're trying to build a kingdom and a temple without him. So that's a great claim that Jesus is saying, I'm that stone. You throw me away, you throw God's cornerstone away, you don't get God's kingdom. It's a big claim. But what is the proof that the cornerstone they threw away by killing is actually the cornerstone. And the proof is twofold. Well, first of all, without that cornerstone, your structure will be torn down and fall. The system, symbolized by the temple itself, Jesus is saying, when it all comes down, you know you were missing the cornerstone. It's the one you killed and threw away. But secondly, the way you know that it really was the cornerstone, that Jesus really was the Messiah, that he really was the Son of Man, is that after you kill him, He will be preached and proclaimed. That is the the laying of the foundation stone. He will be proclaimed and people believe on him and God builds the new building, temple, kingdom, without you. So the two things happen simultaneously. The old system and temple are torn down and the new temple and system are raised in this international church. Did that happen in the first century? Of course it did. That's what we said the last two weeks in Mark 13, that the temple would be destroyed and the church would be built. Jesus proved himself the cornerstone and part of the proof was the destruction of Jerusalem. But secondly, the parable of the tenants. Do you remember the the seething anger with which they hated Jesus after he told them the parable of of the tenants? In Mark chapter 12, 1 through 12, he told them, you guys are like the, 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 the vineyard workers that God let work his vineyard but you wouldn't send him the fruit that he wanted, so he sent you prophets and you kept killing them, and then he sent you his son and you killed them, and then God is going to, sort of as the the vineyard owner, is going to come with an army and kill you and give the nation to a people who will provide fruits for God. And they recognized rightly that he was talking about them. Jesus was saying, you're going to kill me, and then God's going to take away from you God's blessings and give them to another people. What's the proof in that little story? What would be the proof that the guy you just killed is in fact the son? What would be the proof that what he just said was true is that after you kill him, God sends armies, destroys your nation, and gives God's blessings to another people? 
So see this destruction of Jerusalem and everything that Jesus is saying is this this climactic point of the whole Old Covenant story arriving at their failing to know the time of their visitation in Luke's language. They failed to know the time of their visitation. Therefore, they did not receive the Messiah. They killed him. He rose back up. Then he raised to heaven, sent armies against them and destroyed them, all the while saving people through the gospel message in the new temple, the eternal kingdom, the glory of the church of Jesus Christ, which is where he ends. So you will see my kingdom come in power and great glory, he said, Luke, uh, Mark 9. You will see my power. Uh, You will see the Son of Man, that he is in heaven with power and glory. Mark 13, verse 26. And then verse 27. And then he will send out the messengers. Translated here as angels. The The other fair translation is messengers. That's all it means. Then he will send out the messengers and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Do you know what that is? That's the Great Commission. That after you, you, you try and you kill the, the prince and he raises back up and you kill the people of the prince and, and the gospel keeps on being proclaimed and, and your temple is destroyed and the new temple is built, the, the great commission will go to every nation, every country, every town and village. Jesus will be proclaimed. His messengers will go to the far reaches of the world, to the ends of the world and Jesus will be believed upon. That is the message of judgment that Jesus delivers against those, that generation, but it is the message of promise that we hear this morning. That right now, you are held by that same God in the moment of decision, in the point of decision. You may not be a part of that generation that crucified Jesus, but you will join them in hellfire if you, along with them, punch the ticket that says, I reject Jesus Christ. I disbelieve his prophecies. I do not care what he told me he would do. I reject his judgment. I will build my own kingdom. I will live my own life. I will reject his laws. If you do not bend the knee of repentance to Jesus... If by faith alone you do not receive the message of the cross that he died for you, you will suffer in agony for the punishment of your sins. And yet, and yet, the messengers are still going out today to the ends of the world. The gospel is being proclaimed. Jesus is on offer. He died for sinners, knowing he would be butchered, but knowing the promise of a kingdom that would come. Being sent by the Father to die but being sent by the Father to die so that he could reign. He now opens the doors of his kingdom and proclaims, come to me all who are weak and heavy laden. Come to me all who are weighed down by sin and corruption and condemnation. All those who fear the wrath of God, come to me and you will be saved in the moment that you believe. Have you believed? I compel you to believe today. Receive Jesus, be saved and glorify God. Let's pray. It is no doubt, Lord God, that it is a fearful thing to read of your judgments through history and through scripture. And we would be kidding ourselves if we just read this as a light, fun exercise of seeing what you did in history, Lord. If we go into the details, if we let our hearts be be pressed on by the the pressure of what your word says, it is a horrible image, as, as the book of Hebrews says. It is a horrible thing, a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God. 
God, it is, a, it is a horrible, foolish mistake to flee from you and run from you and think that there will not be consequences. It is a horrible thing to reject the message of the gospel and think that we will get off lighter than those who rejected the message of the old covenant. If those, Lord God, who rejected Moses and sinned against Moses' law were so destroyed, what would become of those who rejected Jesus and sinned against Jesus' command to be saved? Father God, we... We ask that this solemn, this sobering thought would have the effect of leading us to repentance. If there are some today, and there are, there are some in this room who know themselves to be outside of Jesus, not a part of his saving work, not receiving his blessings and his love and his Holy Spirit, not living in step with the Spirit and producing the fruit of the Spirit and and living as one blood-bought, joyful soul. They know themselves to be that. And we ask God that this this horrible, this solemn thought of of your judgment against those covenant breakers, we pray that that would, as Romans 2 says, that this would lead them to repentance, that this would lead them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as they recognize how gracious you are. There is nothing, there is nothing about your judgment or our, our sin that means that we deserve another day. I pray, Lord God, that you would press on the unbelieving hearts in this room, that they must believe in Jesus, trust his death is sufficient, believe that he rose from the dead, know that he will judge them, and know that if they believe, they will be saved. God, I pray that those of us who are now in a better covenant than the old covenant, we are in a covenant that cannot be broken once you are sealed in it by the Holy Spirit, that we don't have to, we don't have to worry or fear that you will one day turn around and punish us for all of our sins because if we've had faith in Jesus, he was punished for our sins. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for a better covenant. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the better kingdom that you established in your blood. And thank you for the good news today that every one of our sins, no matter how horrible they were this past week, no matter how, how much we've been unrepentant about it, how, how little we've prayed, how little we've read your word, how, 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 how many times we've failed to be a faithful Christian this last week and month and year, Lord God, your mercy is more. You give more grace and thank you that that grace was purchased by the blood of Jesus. We pray all of these things in his name and for his glory. And everybody said, amen.